0: And then I realized that, you know, my family's life and the life of our newly born daughter and myself were, were not safe. I knew that this was me being forced to leave my country, you know, me being forced to bury my dreams and aspirations.
1: I mean, these are some of the greatest talent of Afghan journalism. I know almost no Afghan journalist at stayed.
2: Actually, we decided to, because of their safety, we couldn't afford to risk their lives when they were uh, on their way to the office. I mean, it was completely anarchy the first 12 hours. No one was in charge.
3: On the Sunday morning that Kabul fell, people in Afghanistan turned on the television and noticed the programming was a little different. The women on the main Afghan news channels had disappeared like the raising of a flag or the toppling of a statue. It was a sign that the country had changed with manic suddenness. The Taliban had returned to power. For more than a decade, Afghans had grown used to the sight of women presenting the news. But now the networks had removed their female anchors from the studios and their reporters from the streets. But then came a stunning turnaround. The women came back on screen. And not only that, One leading female anchor on the news channel Tolo News ended up interviewing a Taliban spokesman, something that would have been unthinkable the last time these Islamic fundamentalists controlled the country and the airwaves.
1: Can you just introduce yourself? Mr Shaheen, can you hear me?
3: Viewers of the BBC also witnessed something they hadn't seen before. A Taliban spokesman ringing okay. the presenter Yolda Hakim live on, on air. Phone,
1: so we're just going to see if we can uh, put you on speaker.
3: And happily conducting an interview. These are just a militant organisation, often seen as a medieval throwback, has embraced the communication strategies of the new millennium its lightning takeover of the country was followed shortly afterwards by a blitz of the media.
0: Women will be allowed to work in any sectors they were engaged as before within the Islamic principles.
3: But what are we to make of Taliban 2.0? And what sort of future faces news organizations reporting from on the ground in Afghanistan? Because when foreign correspondents rush to Kabul a whole generation of local Afghan reporters started heading in the opposite direction. I'm Nick Bryan and this is Journo, a podcast from the Judith Nielsen Institute for Journalism and Ideas. We're taking a closer look at how news is made, how news is disseminated, how news is consumed. We're looking at the biggest challenges and the biggest opportunities facing our industry
0: i don't know why i was uh, seen as a threat because i would have simply continued telling the story of the people of afghanistan but to be honest with you i had you know dedicated my whole life i was deeply committed to telling the stories of the people of afghanistan
3: bilal sawari is a legend in afghan media circles a skilled producer and what we call a local fixer a brave and brilliant journalist. I worked with him many times, and he always helped me decipher the land of his birth. Now, with his wife and young daughter, he's had to flee the country. He'd heard the Taliban wanted to kill him.
0: And suddenly, Kabul was a city filled with Taliban fighters. They were on the streets, so I continued reporting until Taliban fighters, the various factions, you know, continued to appear on my gates. And I got in touch with certain Taliban officials and leaders, including a classmate of mine who I I had known. And then I realized that, you know, my family's life and the life of our newly born daughter and myself were, were not safe. So suddenly I had to leave my office, which was next to my home, with literally my computer and an iPhone Uh, in a pair of clothes and we were hiding for a couple of nights before we made it uh, to the Hamid Karzai International Airport thanks to the Qatari state for evacuating 150 Afghans and once Nick I was inside that airport I knew I wasn't there to tell the story again I knew that this was me being forced to leave my country you know me being forced to bury my dreams and aspirations and today I can tell you that not many people are left behind to tell the story of the people of Afghanistan, Afghanistan's best and most educated and capable generation have all either left the country fleeing or some who are there are hiding, fearing for their lives.
3: Now, Bilal, there's, there's a 9-11 generation of Afghan journalists, people like you, who got involved shortly after September the 11th, sometimes inadvertently. Just, just tell us the story of how you came to get yourself involved in journalism
0: I was a corporate salesman and I was also selling antiques actually rather fake antiques I I must admit in the Pakistani city of Peshawar uh, at the five-star hotel the Pearl Continental Hotel and there was very little hope back then about Afghanistan Afghanistan was facing international isolations the Americans did not have a good relationship with the Taliban Uh, al-Qaeda had a presence and suddenly, in the middle of uh, the day, I saw a plane hitting the World Trade Center. And the first one, everyone thought that may- might have been kind of a, a an accident. Yeah, now remember, oh my God. Oh my God. That looks like a second plane. When we saw those planes, uh, you know, in those attacks, everyone knew that something might happen. Oh,
3: another plane you coming in from the side. You did, I did. that was out of, out Yes, and my that's view. the second explosion. The
0: next morning I arrived, The lobby of the hotel was, like, full with international reporters, and my luck, like, changed overnight. I was offered a job with Abu Dhabi TV as a translator. We crossed immediately into Afghanistan, where we covered the U.S. bombing against the Taliban and subsequent fall of uh, the Taliban at that time. But back then, I didn't think that I will end up, uh, you know, staying as a journalist or Afghanistan will change. Everyone thought, this was just uh, an American attack and it will just go away. And the journey that we started uh, back then uh, was taking a place at a time when Afghanistan exactly resembled a destroyed society. Afghanistan did not have state institutions. Afghanistan did not have roads. Afghanistan did not have internet. Afghanistan did not have this. Uh, you know, educated class of Afghans who've been to the world, studied, came back. And then was this period from 2010 onwards of heartbreaks, continuous loss of friends and colleagues and people who were close to me. We were not the generation of the 1990s. We were connected to the world. We had access to social media, to internet. We knew the country. And let's hope that that can change. Uh, for some of my other colleagues in the coming months and years. But to me, it does look like, uh, you know, a lot of people felt uh, threatened, a lot of people felt forced to leave the country. And at the moment, you've got no one literally left uh, to tell the story.
3: Bilal, how hard is it going to be to be a journalist in Afghanistan going forward are they going to be able to write articles that are critical are they going to be able to ask difficult questions at press conferences
0: i don't think so because in the province of jozjan certain taliban media officials went and met with the uh, local media representatives and they said that whatever reports you record and you are producing you have to show it to us before you publish it and kabul the taliban spokesperson Zabiullah mujahid said that Avan media is welcome to criticize us, to make us work better. But everything has to be in the context of the Afghan culture in Sharia law. Now, those are, you know, terms open to abuse. Obviously, we know that, but I don't think that challenging the Taliban or challenging Taliban policies is something that Afghan media could do very easily from here on.
1: When we got in, everything was so calm, it was bizarre. We were laughing with relief on the road back to our hotel from the airport. I was picked up by a colleague, an Afghan fixer, who's a good friend of mine, who came and picked us up in his little car. We just wanted to go super low key. And we were just driving through the streets in awe of how normal it was, given that the city was clearly about to fall. There were, you know, the usual traffic jams, very busy, bustling markets. I saw restaurants jammed and packed, people on bicycles, weaving through the traffic. Just such normal scenes that I have seen in Kabul for the last 13 years.
3: Jane Ferguson has been reporting on Afghanistan for more than a decade on assignment for the American network PBS and The New Yorker. She flew in on the Sunday Kabul fell to the Taliban.
1: And my phone just starts pinging and pinging and pinging about 45 minutes later. And I I rather dramatically ran down the hallway to my cameraman's door and knocked on it, and I was like, it's happening. So we ran up onto the roof, and I'd been awoken by, you know, tweets and messages saying they're entering the city. And we stood on the roof, and we watched some of their supporters sort of march down the street a little bit, but we didn't see any Taliban. What we did see, which was terrifying, was all of the security, all of the police, all of the military... Every checkpoint in our very, very, you know, secure central city area just melted. Suddenly, there were no security forces anywhere.
3: And that's the kind of moment where it can go either way.
1: Exactly. The streets just emptied and people as well. She was there to report. But once
3: Jane and a cameraman relocated to the airport compound, suddenly she found herself spending most of her time trying to help people leave.
1: Everybody was trying to get out of the country and people would call desperate, you know, to get help, get help from us getting them out. So a lot of us turned into like 80% trying to get people on planes, 20% reporting. And that meant one and a half hours sleep a night and spending 20 hours a day around people who are experiencing phenomenal trauma and begging you to make it stop.
3: And the tragedy of all this is that so many of those Afghan journalists that news organizations have relied upon for decades and have done such a brilliant job in telling the story of their own country have now left their own country.
1: Along with so many other young talent, you know, the Afghan journalists, it's a whole generation of media. I helped two female photographers escape. They had been approved for visas by the United States, but they hadn't been issued in their passports. I had to sneak them in the back door to get them into Barron Hotel. These are two phenomenal young women, huge social media followings, because they do these beautiful, beautiful videos um, and pieces of basically visual art from around Afghanistan, celebrating their country, celebrating how beautiful it is, and trying to push back against the narrative of, you know, war and disease and poverty. You know, one of them is, is fairly well known, Fatima Hosseini. She has galleries and exhibitions around the world. She has one apparently in New York City on, on 9-11 coming up. And the other is Roya Haideri. And she's she's very well known as as a videographer and a wonderful photographer. And, you know, these are two women who are sort of mid to late 20s, the absolute product of all the, the, the investments made in Afghanistan. You know, militarily... The war has been lost. But when it came to to women's rights, there were there were a lot of successes. I mean, it was there was very patchy success. But that generation, that that generation in their mid to late 20s, educated at home, not the elites who came from the rich families and were, you know, going to boarding school and college abroad anyway, but like the, the kids who came from working and middle-class backgrounds in Kabul, who went to Kabul University, who graduated and built careers, and the most talented and hardworking who sort of ascended. To having very good careers, they're gone. Anisa Shaheed, one of the most famous correspondents at tollo TV, who I profiled in January. I did a ride around with her. She went out on assignment for a couple of days in a row because of the assassination campaign by the Taliban at the time that was really hitting women hard. It was horrendous. They were killing judges and human rights activists and journalists were top of the list. Female journalists on camera So Anissa, you know, I called Anissa before I got there saying, are you okay, what's going on? She was like, I'm fine, I'm fine. Anissa had absolutely swore she would never leave her country. She was a star and she loved her work. So she said when I called her, I messaged her on on the plane from New York to Dubai and she said, I'm home, I'm safe, everything's fine. And then when I got to Kabul, she was looking for a flight, trying to figure out what to do. And then I called her thinking I could maybe help sneak her onto the base and she was already on the flight line ready to get on a plane, surrounded by other female journalists. And she's now, I, I got a message from her, via her, via uh, my camera woman that I worked with in January, from Anissa saying that she made it to the United States. I mean, these are some of the greatest talent of Afghan journalism. Everybody, everybody. I know almost no Afghan journalists that stayed that that I know of, that were, you know, friends and who were well-known.
3: We've just seen this exodus of... of- the whole journalistic generation
1: Absolutely. One hundred percent. And I think the likelihood of them coming home is low. You know they're not going to be able to work at home anymore.
3: And the future, Jane, for those who've decided to stay?
1: I really don't know. I can't see that they that the Taliban are going to tolerate the kind of questioning and probing and quality journalism that you do see from the local from the local journalists in Afghanistan. It was hard before the government was becoming increasingly belligerent they had this very with us or against us mentality they were you know not disciplining the military if they abused journalists it was becoming incredibly difficult for reporters but now i just don't see it's too much of a risk you know Us, we're foreign correspondents we fly into war zones when our family and loved ones are tucked up safely at home that's not the case for afghan journalists you know if the taliban want to get or anybody any armed group any criminal gang, you know, it could be, you know, lawlessness after all. Well, if you can't protect your family, how can you do your work?
3: There's been a lot of talk, Jane, about Taliban 2.0, light a Taliban that's far more media savvy than the Taliban that was in charge in Kabul at the turn of the century. I wonder, what, what was your sense of that?
1: I think that is a brilliant idea that has been cooked up in an office in Doha by Taliban leaders, but... I think implementing that is going to be impossible, absolutely impossible. I mean, the Taliban admitted less than 10 days after they've taken Kabul and to fanfare and a big press conference and, you know, women are great, can't wait to see them at work, blah, blah, blah. Then we, we see the Taliban ordering women to their homes. I mean, and, and, and they admitted it. They explained, they said, we're doing this because we can't control our foot soldiers.
0: I think they have been, over the years, very, very efficient, very, very quick, and they have transformed themselves, uh, you know, uh, they have adopted to technology, to social media, they've been able to produce content in many different languages. Even at one stage, you know, there were Taliban embeds, when the Afghan government and the American military were not allowing it, the Taliban would, like, literally guarantee, any Western reporter, including female reporters, because they were portraying themselves as changed.
1: The other thing to remember about this whole Taliban light thing is that it hasn't been 20 years since the Taliban ruled. They've been ruling large swathes of Afghanistan in a de facto manner for 20 years. I've been to Taliban ruled ruled Afghanistan. They, ha- you know, we can see what Taliban rule looks like because it exists all over Afghanistan. So. You know it is no walk in the park being a woman in taliban territory right now so i don't see how that would suddenly change because they're sitting in the capital
3: you spoke about these spokespeople in doha acting for the taliban um i mean they've set up a pretty sophisticated com shop over the last few years that's, that's based out of doha right
1: they have become much better at talking to journalists now I, unfortunately, was kind of stuck at the airport, um, which meant I was able to cover that crisis, but I wasn't able to go to the press conference. And, oh, my God, as a woman, I was so desperate to go, to be able to have the protection of the facade of respecting the press, to be able to ask the questions I want to in the manner that I want to. I still go. It's still rattles around in my head where the scene where I asked the questions that have been on my mind for 13 years. Anyway, so they had the press conference and, you know, the reality is that they're aware of optics, but they have no concept of execution. So they've come up with this in Doha where they are in a very controlled environment. Not only is it a Gulf city, so it is very controlled, you know, it is essentially a police state. Um, where, you know, no, you're not going to have things like cameras doorstepping you wherever you go. Um, you're not going to have people following you around. You're not going to have um, issues of, uh, you know, f- f- issues to do with freedom of the press that, that they would have if they were sitting in London or New York or Berlin or Johannesburg or anywhere around the world. Um, so they have been living in a controlled environment. Um, And they've also, you know, been very, 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 very selective with who they speak to, uh, or or, or how often they speak on on camera. Um, So I think that they have managed to control their messaging from there fairly well, but that is a completely different monster to running a city with loads of really good domestic reporters. You know, Don't forget like, Afghan reporters who are experts and scrappy and brave, um, running around, you know, asking questions, filming things. I think they're, they're absolutely shocked at the reality of inheriting what is kind of a deeply flawed but still a, a democracy. And how do they handle people who are used to freedoms, journalists who are used to freedoms, And they're not handling it very well because, you know, journalists are getting beaten up. They're getting turned away from their work. You know, they're simply not upholding their promises.
3: So it doesn't sound like the Taliban's words can be taken at face value, that they'll allow journalists to do their jobs.
2: A white land cruiser showed up and a whole bunch of Taliban jumped out. Without asking questions, uh, they started to beat up our people, who then quickly produced their... ID cards that they work for media organization. That didn't stop them.
3: When I spoke to Saab Massani, the Melbourne race head of the Afghan news channel Tolo News, two of his reporters had just been beaten up by the Taliban.
2: They then confiscated their cameras, or a camera, their microphones and their mobile phones, and then left. So there's this culture of impunity where people can get away with things and there is no rule of law, is, is alarming. So today, for example, when our people were beaten up, the question is, do we send people out for the next 24 hours? What do we do? Do we report on this incident? Uh, How do we get our cameras back? Every camera is expensive, you know, microphones and mobile phones, people's mobile phones. Um, How badly were our people injured?
3: Based in Kabul, TOLO news is very slick, it looks very American, and it ended up making the headlines itself when one of its leading female anchors interviewed a Taliban spokesman live on air immediately following the takeover. An indication of just how deeply the Taliban understood the need to revamp its image.
2: I think he came in uh, partially to uh, reassure our people and the Afghan public, that they were okay with uh, with independent media. And when he came in, we, we suggested that he be interviewed by the lady who was presenting the show, to which he said yes.
3: They, they had a conversation and... Uh,
2: that was history. I mean, that was, obviously, the Taliban, when they last ruled, there was no television. So, technically, this was, uh, you know, a first in terms of a Taliban official in a Taliban era speaking to a woman on television. Because
3: initially, as I understand it, you decided to take your female reporters and anchors off air in in fear. For their safety?
2: Actually, we decided to, because of their safety and because we were not sure who was in charge, to not let them come into the office. It wasn't because of uh, whether they were on or off camera. It was just because we couldn't afford to risk their lives when they were uh, on their way to the office. I mean, it was completely anarchy the first 12 hours. No one was in charge.
3: And what made you rethink that decision? Because soon we started seeing women reporters on the streets and women anchors on set
2: well you're a journalist nick i mean uh, it's it's a it's in the dna of every journalist to push the envelope any opportunity they get so as soon as they felt they could push the envelope that's exactly what they did
3: i wonder what sort of conversations you're having with your staff right now your reporters your anchors whether male or female i mean how afraid are they how worried are they about the future? Uh, I mean, one word presumably out of line and, uh, and there could be real trouble for them.
2: Programming's important, content's important, content is important, but their lives are a lot more important. So a lot of them have left or they're in the process of leaving. So we've had to hire new people. Like, literally we've hired people on the Monday uh, to be in front of the camera on the Tuesday. And some with limited experience. So, you know, we're not like uh, like a amateur TV station. This is a professional outlet with six hundred employees. That, if you look at it, it looks like any other TV network around the world. And and uh, we have a pretty high standard. And we, you know, when someone comes and joins us, they either intern for us or they, you know, they join us as an assistant. And it takes time for them to appear before the camera. There's this process. And now we've had to like. Hire people with limited experience and put them in front of the camera overnight, because we also have to keep going in terms of what we put out content-wise.
3: So when we see those planes take off from Kabul Airport, a lot of your employees are on board.
2: Yes, it's a painful thing to watch. We have to help them. We have helped them with documentation. We have helped them in terms of getting on lists to fly out. But it's also it's sad to see. This, this this class of Afghans, educated, aspirational, young, forward-looking, forward-thinking, to lose this generation of Afghans. Afghanistan is the youngest country outside of uh, sub-Saharan Africa. And even if you look at the population of Afghanistan, which was 21 million in 2001, it shot up to 38 million. So it's a, it's a totally different country, and the majority of which are under the age of 25, vast majority. Now, the younger Afghans, you know, under the age of 20, 25, they've never experienced or they can't remember uh, a Taliban type rule ever. I mean, they've never experienced it. They've heard about it, but they haven't experienced it. But what's ironic is also the Taliban fighters who are you know, mostly in the early 20s, they've also not experienced a Taliban type era where everything was banned. Most of the Taliban fighters, the supporters of the Taliban, also use social media, use uh, WhatsApp, use Telegram. They communicate with each other using a mobile device. So for them also, it's going to be very bizarre if the Taliban completely, you know, ban any device. They ban television. So it's going to be jarring for both sides. It's going to be a jarring experience for all of Afghanistan.
3: What we've been seeing over recent weeks is quite extraordinary really Taliban spokesman jumping onto Twitter and speaking in a kind of Twitter lingo a kind of snarky way sort of mocking the Americans for instance we've seen a bit of a meme war you know there was that meme of of the the Taliban fighters hoisting the flag that was mocking the U.S. Marines in in Iwo Jima I mean, that's a dramatic change from the Taliban we knew in the past, right?
2: Well, I'll give you, the, I'll give you, you know, in 2004, they, they somehow found my telephone number and they would call me, and they would call me between 7 and 8, let's say. It was actually uh, a specific time, and probably that's the only time that they could uh, find a safe spot where from where they could call from. And they would say, Mr. Mussani, how's the family? And th- that would go on for like five minutes. You know, how are you? How's the family? How are the kids? And then they would say, you know, today – We killed 20 americans and you didn't report on this and they would not they would be vague as you know as to where this happened and anyway and then i would check with my news guys and they would say it's not true and then the next day they would call again they would say we killed 20 americans again it was very vague and eventually i would say to them listen i mean if it was 17 one day and 22 the next day it's more believable but you have nothing specific and you know so they were they were amateurs in those days and you know they would call me directly and and they were not particularly believable. But in 2021, they would send WhatsApp messages, they would send footage, they would send pictures. They would have, their stories are bound to, I mean, I think all sides exaggerate. So you don't always have to look into um, into their allegations, but they were a lot more accurate and a lot more precise than the government. For example, if there was this attack against a civilian camp, for example, and. Uh, there were civilian casualties, the government would lie about it or the Americans would lie about it for four or five days until you presented them with footage, with pictures, with accounts from witnesses. And eventually they'd say, yes, it was us. But the Taliban were much, more, you know, much quicker to get the information to us. And then that would prompt us to send the journalists there. And then we'd get the story out, which would be damaging to the Americans and to the Afghan forces and perhaps positive for the Taliban. But that just sort of gives you a difference in terms of how quick and nimble they became and how tech-savvy. I mean, the guy was so sweet. He was eventually arrested, and I think he was released, and I I still think he's in the Taliban. But he would call me, and he would say hello for like 15 minutes. I mean, we couldn't get him off the phone.
3: In recent months, it seems, the Afghan government's media team just couldn't keep pace with their agile opponents.
2: They were slow to react to things. I mean, we had queries, and we had... We put questions to them and they would be slow. They would take like three days to get back to us. The Taliban were quick. If we had an issue at a checkpoint in Ghazni, uh, we'd have to wait 12 hours for the government to actually have our people released, whereas the Taliban could do it in 20 minutes. I mean, every experience with the government was frustrating and every experience with the Taliban was, was smooth, if you can call it that. Um, so I think because they have a smaller team, they're nimble, they're fast, they're engaged, they had personal relationships with the journalists, whereas the government officials were arrogant, they had armored vehicles, they had bodyguards, they were difficult to reach. So you can see the difference, right? I mean, that's not to say that the Taliban will not become like that in the, in the, in the months and years ahead, but certainly that was experience in, in terms of us dealing with the government versus the Taliban.
3: So you think that one of the reasons why the Taliban won the war was because they won the media war?
2: You know, everything, you know, every war is 80% psychological and media plays a really important role uh, in terms of determining what, how people see the two sides.
3: I just wonder what sort of contingency planning you're making right now. What what happens if they do shut you down?
2: I think, so, lies of our journalists... Priority one. Priority two is continuity. Uh, we have to be able to continue whether we're, we're inside Afghanistan or outside of Afghanistan. We owe it to the Afghan uh, nation, to our viewers, to continue with both news and uh, our entertainment programs. We, we're sort of, I mean, I don't want to overstate this, but I think media has become sort of the beacon of hope for the country. And I think will be even more important going forward, not just our group, but other media outlets as well.
3: Have there been moments over the last few weeks when you've thought, this is too hard, this is too dangerous?
2: Every minute of every day. I think we have we have no choice, we have no option. I mean, as someone said, are you being optimistic? I said, well, I'm hopeful, because to feel hopeless is, 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 is far worse.
3: Afghanistan has always exerted a special hold on the journalistic imagination. This is the blurred frontier in America's forgotten war. Two years ago, the Taliban was coming over this border in groups of 60 to 100. During the recent winter months, that number has dropped to small pockets of five or six. That's fueled American claims that the Taliban is a force in decline. Most aspiring foreign correspondents want to report from there. Most veterans always harbour a hankering to return. The country has that kind of spellbinding effect. But it's always been the local journals who've been the principal tellers of the story. Day in, day out, decade after war-torn decade. They've been there when the country dominated the headlines as it did after 9-11. And also there for those long periods when Afghanistan was not just a forever war, but also a forgotten war. They're the true heroes and heroines of our business. Some remain to tell their country's story, some of whom have literally got their start in journalism amidst the chaos of the past few weeks. We wish them well.
1: But it's
3: still tragic to think that on those planes taking off from Kabul airport, so many Afghan journalists were on board.
0: When I got married, I was often thinking that if God gave me a daughter, a baby daughter, I'm going to name her Peace, because we lost so many friends and relatives and family members. When I had a baby daughter, we did name her Sola, which means Peace. I had hoped that my daughter would grow up in a normal Afghanistan, uh, but quite tragically, you know, her hopes and our hopes have been shattered.
3: Well, good luck with what happens next in the country that you're going to make your new home. And good luck to your wife. And good luck to your beautiful daughter.
0: Thank you. Thanks a lot.
3: Journo is produced by Deadset Studios for the Judith Nielsen Institute, which supports quality journalism and storytelling around the world. You can find out more about the Institute's programs and events at jninstitute.org. Make sure you follow the podcast in your podcasting app so you're alerted each time we release a new episode. Our executive producer is Rachel Fountain. Our producers are Margie Smithhurst, Nicole Kirby, and Britta Jorgensen. Our managing editor is Kelly Reardon. And special thanks to Andrea Ho at the Judith Nelson Institute. I'm Nick Bryan. And next on Journo, how does the media tell the story of the continued rise of China without having boots on the ground.